welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Not in the podcast, we're talking about how vaccines can prevent cancer. Also some new cervical screening for Canadian women. Testosterone, what's the hype? New FDA-approved medication for erectile dysfunction. And what vaccines do adults need over the age of 65? And what is active dying? I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. This is just an incredible story. I know the word vaccine is going to trigger a lot of people out there, but, you know, vaccines have been incredibly important in terms of eradicating illnesses and diseases. And it looks like Australia is a star country in terms of uh, being on track to eliminate cervical cancer by 2035 because they have rising HPV, human papillomavirus, vaccination rates. Australia, when the HPV vaccine came into play uh, several years ago, Australia made the very prudent and wise decision to vaccinate girls and boys. Girls and boys get vaccinated in grade six for this. That seems a little early for people because a lot of people fear that if you vaccinate somebody against a sexually transmitted infection, that might cause them to become sexually active before or sooner than they might have before, when actually the evidence demonstrates that if you provide more education uh, to people about sexual health and, and and sex in general, then they are actually less likely to start being sexually active earlier. Um, so this is just amazing. This is incredible that uh, cervical cancer is going to be eradicated. We have a caller on the line. Um, good evening. Hello there. <laughs> Hello. Hello. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you. Daryl. Is that Daryl? Yeah, correct. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Thanks. Um, I'll just, uh, try to keep this, uh, as concise as possible. Uh, I have, uh, a fiance or the love of my life. Um, mm-hmm. She um, has been under uh, extreme amount of stress uh, in the last year or so. Um, she finally uh, confessed or, or, or talked to me about uh, a concern she has. She's had uh, very irregular um, menstrual cycles for years. Mm-hmm. And um, recently it's kind of even gotten worse. But again, a lot of stress uh, in her life. She feels that she's most likely, as in her words, 95% sure, uh, perimenopausal, mm-hmm. but she's really struggling. She's she's going to turn 50 uh, the next month, and I'm, I'm also 50. Uh, we're in a new relationship. Uh, she's very um, concerned or, I guess, overwhelmed with the stereotype of menopause. Uh, she feels she's too young for it. Um, her mother had it uh, quite early too, but she's she's really struggling with the concept of being the you know the bitchy the you know bitchy gaining weight that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, so I'm just trying to figure out what I can do to help her. Oh, that's so great! What a great call. You know, I will say that she's not having she's not young for menopause. Perimenopause 
or the years leading up to the menopause. It can start as early as age 37, where women can experience a host of physical symptoms, urogenital symptoms, so symptoms like heart palpitations, night sweats, hot flashes, weight gain for sure, um, joint and muscle pain, insomnia, anxiety. And then stress can also affect one's menstrual cycle as well, just adding insult to injury basically. But the average age of menopause, and menopause is just a moment. It's actually, uh, it's 12, once you've not had a period for 12 months, that's, you're considered postmenopausal essentially. So you go into uh, average age is 51 years of age. She's 50. You said Daryl and um, what's that? Sorry. Sorry. Uh, just just to, to, she's going on four months, four months. No, but she's 50 years old. Did you say uh, she'll turn 50 next month? Yeah. Yeah, so she'll turn 50 next month. And so, you know, the average age for most Canadian women is 51. So, yeah. which means the period stop, they have will have stopped for 12 months prior to um, that cessation of period. So if you have a full 12 month cessation of period, you are considered in menopause or, or postmenopausal. Um, and so it's actually a, a normal transition of life. It's when reproduction um, is, you know, is no longer for women. And, um, but then on top of that, the stress can affect the menstrual cycle as well. So it's important to get, um, you know, seek the root cause of the stress. We all have stress, but learning ways to manage stress, um, you know, hormone therapy is very helpful for women who are experiencing perimenopause. Yeah, that is what, uh, you know, we talked about last night, you know, it's like, okay, you don't have to be necessarily, again, you know, being a male, you know, I'm trying to be sensitive here. It's like, you know, you don't have to be that stereotype, you know, bitchy, you know, you know, I said there must be way, like not every woman that goes through menopause is that stereotype. So either it affects people differently or there's things you can do. It does affect women differently. Some women experience symptoms. Most women will experience symptoms. And there's about 34 different symptoms of um, menopause, urinary tract infections, vaginal dryness, um, dry mouth, dry eyes, dry hair, chin on, hair on the chin. You know, there's so many different symptoms that can occur, but there are certainly treatments. And it's really a conversation that sh- your fiance, did you say, needs to have with her doctor. Uh, um you know, uh, and to determine what uh, treatment is right for her. Um, yeah, she's, hormone she's been avoiding it because, uh, you know, with the doctor, you know, so we discussed that last night and I said, okay, the unknown is the worst, right? Like, just go. Right, right. And, and it's only, you know, it can be an information-seeking visit. And to understand that so many women, you know, God willing, if you're alive at this age, you're going to go through menopause, you know, um, for all women. And, and women can have very healthy times uh, after menopause or if they're treated appropriately. And actually, it's a good idea to outline. I do a lot of work in this area, actually, uh, where I, you know, um, advise, I, I educate general practitioners on this because mm-hmm. it's they don't get taught this in medical school. But I also, more importantly, I teach women how to or counsel women how to speak to their doctors about their perimenopausal symptoms. And so it's really like keeping a diary, writing out everything that, um, every symptom that she's experiencing, um, be informed about the treatment options that are available. And there are a number of different treatment options that are available, um, for women 
you know, it depends on a person's age and what type of symptoms that they're having, but it's very personalized, but there definitely is treatment. And, you know, menopause is having a moment right now. And, you know, a lot more people have been educated about it. And, uh, and you know what, she doesn't, no one has to suffer and she certainly doesn't yeah. either. Yeah. You know, like her, her 50th birthday is coming up like, uh, like next week, you know, and she's like, I don't even want to think about it. I'm too young for this. And, you know, we're starting out new, like, uh, she left a bad situation and, uh, I'm from high school 30 years ago and we fell in love and, you know, she's just nice. like, Oh my God, everything is beautiful. But now I'm going to be this, you know, bitchy, you know, no sex woman. And I'm like, I'm trying to help her. <laughs> That's something else that decreases the desire as well. But you know what? List all of the symptoms, make an appointment with the doctor, get informed, make an informed decision about what type of treatment. And also what goes a long way is behavioral strategies or lifestyle strategies. So exercise and eating healthy, ensuring to get sleep, but insomnia might be an issue as well. So, I mean, there's just so much to this, but, uh, Love that you called in, Daryl, and uh, let's keep that conversation going. You are so welcome. My pleasure. Um, So anyway, we're going to go to break right now, and I'm going to be talking about um, hurrah to Australia. We'll just finish that with eradicating cancer with a vaccine, and and that is going to lead to other innovations in, in vaccine treatments as well. We're talking about eradicate eradication of uh, cancer using vaccines. And so Australia seems to have done that or seems to be on track, uh, for doing that, which is so awesome. And, um, basically it's, if they have, I think it's four in a hundred thousand cases, it would be considered, uh, completely gone. So that is great. Um, and prior to the vaccine, which was, um, big, it, which began in about eight years ago, I think, it was estimated that up to 90% of, of Australians were infected with the human papilloma, papilloma virus. And a lot of people will get the human papilloma virus, HPV, and which causes all cervical cancers, but it will actually clear on its own uh, within a year or two for some people. So, um, but the, they have a free school vaccination program. It began in 2000, actually in 2007, sorry. Um, and it reduced the HPV vaccine rate by 92%. And that has in turn reduced the rate of cervical abnormalities. What is Canada doing about this? Well, Canada is actually looking to implement at-home screening for HPV. And this could be an opportunity for our country to eliminate this type of cancer as well, cervical cancer. And, you know, it is, the provinces are going in this direction. It's actually started in the East. It's going to be heading toward the West very soon, beginning of the year, 2024. And, you know, the recommendation is that women should be offered take-home kits to screen for cervical cancer. And these are new guidelines, and it is aiming to reduce discrimination in healthcare. We're moving away from the pap smear for screening, and that's recommended at least once every three years for women between the ages of 30 and 69. You don't need a pap smear after the age of 69. And that's when the doctor sweeps up cells in the cervix, spots lesions uh, caused by the human papillomavirus or HPV. And these abnormalities are an early warning sign of changes that become cancerous without treatment. So instead of the pap, 
phasing out the pap, bringing in out with the old and with the new time to take off the old basketball sneakers and put on a new pair of dance shoes. But it's a relatively new HPV test is being rolled out across the country. And the test detects high risk types of the virus. And it works is that those between the ages of 25 and 65 are offered it every five years with slight variations from province to province. And so this way, this is going to help an HPV home test helps overcome barriers such as for women being able, unable to take time off from work for medical appointments, for women who've had a history of sexual trauma or for lack of awareness. And this could be a really, really important alternative to increasing those screening rates. Screening rates are so, or screening is so important in terms of prevention. And this way people can do it in the comfort of their own home. They can feel safe they can, um, you know, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Pap smear's accuracy is around 60%. Um, and it, 60 to maybe 90%, depending on, um, you know, what, you know, the, the procedure, how the procedure's done, the operator, basically. Um, but th- this is actually closer to 90%, this HPV type testing. Um, and this is why we need to, because it's only 60%, sorry, it's 60% for the pap smears and it's 90% for this home testing. And that's why the pap smears need to be repeated. Um, you know, so this test will give a little bit more confidence to doctors that somebody is negative. Anyway, it hasn't reached everyone yet, but just be a little bit patient and um, we'll be moving on with that. So that's exciting news in healthcare. How are you all doing out there tonight? If you have a question or comment, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You know, uh, some listeners actually emailed in to me and, uh, you know, you hear a lot of things advertised. There's these marketing frenzies. I see it all over Instagram, all over Facebook, all of these big promises, no delivery. Um, you know, because oftentimes it's people who don't have any medical background. This is a big sticking point for me. Uh, people who don't see patients, they've never seen patients. They've never been in a clinical practice yet. They're going to provide answers to people, uh, about their medical problems. And there's so many contributing factors to this. And one of them is access to physicians. So there's barriers to care right there. The other thing is the waiting list. The other thing is frustration. We often see it in women experiencing perimenopause. They're frustrated. They're nervous. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to talk to their doctor about it. Their doctor hasn't been educated on it. So a lot of people have capitalized on this. You see coaches and life coaches and trainers and marketers, and they're just, you know, creating these programs or giving medical advice. It's a real danger on, on Facebook and Instagram. Um, to women who are vulnerable, they're capitalizing on them. And, and so we hear oftentimes, you know, this is, we're going to advertise this. It's an expensive cure for you, but it's going to get to your problems. Even if you don't have a problem, we're going to make you think you have a problem because who hasn't fallen asleep after dinner? This is one of the, um, testosterone marketing frenzy, um, advertisements that are, that are out there. And, you know, oftentimes, men do fall asleep after dinner. Maybe they're avoiding the dishes, but it can be a sign of low testosterone. But also 
do you have a decrease in libido? Well, you know what? As people age, they actually do have a decrease in libido. And it can be an, a normal part of aging or it can be a significant change. But you know, people don't really know how to assess this. So they hear this on the radio because we have these marketing or in advertising on, on Instagram or social media or wherever. So we have these things that will draw attention. That's the purpose. I mean, advertising is important. I believe in it. I think it's great to raise awareness about certain things. And if, if advertising weren't important, Coke would not be advertising or Pepsi. Um, you know, so it's important, but um, but it, but you have to keep it within you know the right context, and and I think we we dip into dangerous waters when it's around healthcare and it's not necessarily a trusted healthcare professional. You know, there's a reason people go to nursing school and medical school and physiotherapy school and pharmacy school. There's a reason because they need to learn to critically think. They also need experience with patients and experience seeing people in a clinical practice. One of the most common ones that I see is, um, you know, women will overpromise. for example. They'll say, I mean, there's, you know, um, you might not like that I'm using this as an example, but um, sometimes after a woman has had a baby, the, the tissues become stretched, the estrogen has decreased, and so she might experience a prolapse. And that just means the organ has left its original place and it has dropped down. And so I see on Instagram or wherever, Facebook, that these promises, if you buy my program and you do these exercises or these breathing techniques, your prolapse will be reduced. Now, this from somebody who's never examined a woman uh, and and because they don't have any medical training, I certainly hope they have not been examining people if they have not had this specific training. I mean, if you're a nurse, you need to be trained by an OBGYN or somebody in a specialty area in order to examine women. Um, and so vaginally is what I'm talking about. But so how do you know if um, that your prolapse, which is typically graded one to four, um, will go from, how can you promise a woman that you, we can reduce your prolapse from grade three to two if you've actually never looked, if you're an online program and you've actually never assessed uh, thousands of women with prolapse, how can you tell? Because you've probably never been trained in the pop Q assessment. So there's specific things for this. And so this is why it can be extremely dangerous. And we also have to just be extremely careful if we hear some of these marketing frenzies, because you may or may not have low T. Uh, but this is one of the latest big marketing pushes by drug companies. And in fact, it's, um, you know, it's related to a particular medication that is on the market right now. It's a billion dollar selling testosterone uh, formulation. It's used by millions of men around the globe who are struggling with basically symptoms of growing older that can be associated with low testosterone, like poor sex drive, weight gain, and fatigue. There's a number of, you know, it's very, um, you know, and, and to be honest with you, I am not, um, I know a bit about test low testosterone, but I am not, uh, trained in it in depth. I don't have a lot of experience, uh, with that, but I do know that, um, testosterone, that male hormone begins to decline after about the age of 40. And, you know, some claims state falsely, this is false, that testosterone can reverse some of the signs of aging. Um, and you know, the other thing I do know about this is why you have to go to a urologist to actually get treated for low T is that there are some extremely 
um, the some extremely negative side effects or compromising side effects for testosterone. And the safety and effectiveness is not all that clear. The thing is that we don't have any evidence that prescribing testosterone to older men with fairly low testosterone levels is helpful in any way. And so there's clinical trials that are still going on. We're, we're still, you know, we're, we're living a bit longer. Um, although since the pandemic, that seems to have decreased somewhat. Um, there's so many other things that people can do to increase their testosterone levels, like uh, exercise, for example. Um, but low testosterone is that latest example of a once natural part of getting old that has become a target almost for medical treatment. I- included in that is also, you know, brittle bones for guys um, and um, bladder issues as well. And and so the other thing is that testosterone, as women also have testosterone, we just have it in a much smaller degree, have it to a much smaller degree. And so there is testosterone that is often prescribed for women for low sexual desire or for vaginal um, health issues like dryness, for example. But vaginal estrogen, localized estrogens, is of course um, much better for that. And that can also help to increase desire as well. But, you know, the thing is, is that the baby boomers are living so much longer and they want, uh, new ways to deal with, you know, nobody likes getting old. Aging is not for the faint of heart. Uh, the average age in North America today is 78 years, and that's up from 69 years ago, about a half, from 69 years, about a half a century ago. So the, they, those people have money, <laughs> especially if they have any real estate. Um, but they have some money, they have disposable income that they can spend. And, and so the companies, these companies that are promoting these products have stepped up their marketing and they're gearing it toward that older crowd. And so, you know, there's a lot of money spent on advertising on television. You've seen it, I'm sure, um, promoting testosterone and, you know, it's, it's really significant. And so, that what does that do? Men are like they hear the commercial, they hear the see the advertisement. They're like, hey, maybe that's me. Maybe you're just having a lazy day. Maybe you're just tired um, that day, and you were fine yesterday, and you're fine tomorrow. But what this leads to is an increase in men seeking treatment for low testosterone, and you know we see that a lot more men are being treated for. Uh, low testosterone. You know, the thing that's interesting is that I I heard a stat recently that 74% of um, what doctors do is give out prescriptions. So that's what they do. And you know what? Doctors want to do something for you. And there's a prescription for just about anything, Um, whether it's pain medication or low testosterone or something for low sexual desire. I mean, obviously so many people need antihypertensives and medications for diabetes type two. And now with, um, weight loss, some of the, um, well, some of the semaglutide medications, the Ozempics, the Wigovies. Um, and so these, you know, prescriptions are commonplace in the doctor's office. What we need more of is we need more education and we need people to take ownership of their health and we actually need them to, you know, be proactive in terms of, um, um, be proactive in terms of preventing health issues that can occur. Um, and, uh, I have a text message here that I just want to read about a little health issue. You said HPV often clears within a year. Does that mean that they aren't contagious anymore? You know, um, 
to be honest with you, it uh, many people get it and many people clear the virus. And so if you've cleared the virus, you are not contagious anymore. That is correct. It's, and sometimes people don't, most people don't even know, they are not even aware that they actually have uh, the HPV virus. But getting back to testosterone, and but by all means, keep your text messages coming in, one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. You know, the thing is, people are living longer. They want to live better. They want to be more active. And so, but it's a good idea to remain active. Don't let something like menopause or even so-called andropause or the fact that you're getting older, the fact that you've retired, don't let lead, let that lead you to the couch and watch more television. I've read another stat where men after reti- into retirement watch five to six hours of television. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a great idea to stay active, have a purpose, do something every single day. Um, they, you know, and, and also men want to remain sexually active well into their sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties. And so they no longer consider that because they're older, they shouldn't have sexual intercourse. And so that, that is kind of an old thought. So this is why um, you know, people are seeking out the quick fix, which is so unfortunate because oftentimes there are conservative measures that can decrease inflammation, like changing your diet, that can increase your uh, energy level, like cutting out sugar, cutting out carbs, stopping drinking, those kinds of things. You can actually, um, you know, change, change your life, but it takes time. And it takes about four weeks really for things to turn around once you've changed your, upped your exercise and changed your diet. Um, and so the thing is, it's the quick fix. It's kind of a combination between patients or clients wanting something from their doctor. They want the doctor to fix it and the doctor wants to fix it as well. But we really have to, um, you know, really take this into consideration if you want to be as healthy as possible, because nobody wants polypharmacy. Nobody wants to be taking, you know, 10, 15 medications as they age. A, they're expensive. B, they have side effects. Um, you know, and, and C, if you don't stop taking them, you know, that can cause issues as well. Or, you know, grapefruit, uh, interacts negatively with a lot of medications, for example. And so, you know, the best thing to do is preventive health, exercise, get your sleep, cut down on your alcohol, eat a nutritious diet, really get out there and pound the pavement. You know, walking uphill is very good for you. Breaking a sweat five times a week for 30 minutes is also very, very important. So, um, it's, you know, don't necessarily, you don't necessarily need, uh, have a testosterone issue, but it's a good idea to get that your level checked by somebody who actually understands. I know that it's intricate, um, lab laboratory tests, uh, in order to determine if you do need that. But, um, you know, having low T is definitely associated with a broad range of unpleasant symptoms like insomnia, depression, and erectile dysfunction. And so, but there are things you can do even for erectile dysfunction. Things are looking up, guys. <laughs> I want to talk to you about erectile dysfunction, the inability to attain and or maintain, an important word, an erection adequate for penetrative sex. Um, and you know what? That causes a lot of problems for a lot of people. And again, I want to promote the conservative measures that you can 
do to get things headed in the right directions. Erections are about blood flow and it's so good to ensure that your blood is flowing. So make sure your blood pressure is managed by you or medication. So, you know, if you have, uh, the best thing to do is to buy one of those drugstore um, blood pressure machines and take it at home, maybe three times a week, rest for five minutes um, before you take it and make sure that your readings are around 120 over 80. And that will ensure good blood flow. But if your readings are high up, it's it actually uh, equates to poor blood flow in your penis and your carotid arteries as well. And so it's very important that your blood pressure be maintained. Also, once again, hit pound the pavement, get to the gym, get that blood flowing, get moving, really important, and eat healthy, eat a low inflammatory diet. The uh, Mediterranean diet is a great one. I have my all-in diet. I'm happy to send that to you, nursetalk at hotmail.com, or just go to my website and you can um, email me or uh, send me a message here. But, um, you know, very important to cut out the sugars, cut out the carbs, increase the protein, um, you know, low-carbohydrate diet, cut out the alcohol. Uh, If you can, at least try to reduce it. What happens is people increase their consumption of alcohol as they age, I I know, I know it's depressing. Aging, as I said, is not for the faint of heart. But anyway, some good news here. And I I actually think this is pretty good news because I see a lot of patients in my clinical practice who uh, have erectile dysfunction. They might have it as just as a result of, you know, aging um, because they have a poor uh, lifestyle, unhealthy lifestyle, or they um, have had prostatectomy surgery and they're left with urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. My, things are depressing tonight. Um, But so I see a lot of guys with that. But then uh, also I see guys who have been prescribed um, one of the PDE5 inhibitors and they don't like the side effects. They can get flushing, pounding headaches. They can have heart palpitations. Um, So they don't really care for them and they seek a conservative measure after they have tried the prescription medications. And, you know, oftentimes they can turn it around. I utilize things like diet and exercise, vacuum pumps as well. Um, you know, being, you, you need to be sexually aroused as well. Um, or also just educate people about how those medications work. Many people will have tried them maybe once, but you have to try them like five times in order to see if they're going to work for you. And, and sometimes you might have to increase the dose a little bit. And, and also you need to be sexually aroused in order for those to work. So they, and they work best in a high testosterone environment. So, you know, it's about being healthy as well, but I was pretty excited when, and I think you guys will be too, pretty excited when I saw this recent, um, new treatment option that is available without a prescription. In June, the FDA approved the over-the-counter sale of Med 3000, Eroxon love the name, E-R-O-X-O-N. And this is a new option for men to treat erectile dysfunction. And allegedly, this works faster than the regular erectile dysfunction medications, and which is also really exciting. And the other thing about this, this is a gel. It's, it's rubbed onto the head of the penis immediately before sexual intercourse. I think it takes about 10 minutes to work about in the clinical trials, which is very different than real life. Um, But 65% of men who used Med 3000 or Eroxon achieved an erection within 10 minutes and maintained it 
long enough to have sex. Remember I said that word? Maintain is a very important word. Stay tuned to the important words that I mentioned. Um, on the on the show, we do have my health quiz coming up a bit later. It might just be involved there. Uh, the gel, it's contains um, a combination of volatile solvents and they're applied to the head of the penis. They evaporate rapidly, but they stimulate nerve endings through an initial cooling effect that is followed by a warming sensation. And the reaction apparently releases nitric oxide and that relaxes the smooth muscle tissue inside the penis, ultimately increasing blood flow. And the blood flow is what is needed to obtain an erection. And so this is really important. You know, when you look at the medications, um, the medications take about 30 minutes to work. And so you can kind of, you know, lose the spontaneity after, after 30, after you're waiting for 30 minutes. Um, and so 10 minutes is, is such progress, dare I say. And, um, it's going to be so helpful for so many guys who experience, um, erectile dysfunction. Now there, nothing is without side effects. Everything has side effects, but the side effect profile was low and they were typically headaches and nausea, but you know, sex can actually help with pain. So that may not be a biggest problem. They only occurred in about one to 3% of men and no side effects were reported among the sexual partners. People are often interested in that. Anyway, I think it's, um, great advancement, um, for people who suffer with erectile dysfunction. If they put as much research into women's sexual health as men's, I'd be a happy camper. We're going to be talking about yeah, vaccines. We've used that V word quite a bit tonight. Um, and I realize that it might trigger some of you, be, but vaccines have just been amazing in terms of eradicating many, many childhood diseases. And also it's very important for adults, especially as they age. So joining me on the line right now to talk about some of the vaccines that you need the age of 65 and above is medical doctor, family physician, and productivity coach, Dr. Tomi Mitchell. Her website, wellnessstrategies.com. That's wellnessstrategies.com. And yes, there are three S's in there. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. How are you? I'm well, Maureen. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining the program tonight. You know, when we think of vaccines, I think, well, first of all, people think of the COVID-19 vaccine, which when we didn't have yeah. one, people were desperate for one. And then when we got one, people were upset about getting a vaccine, thinking that they were having a microchip installed and thinking that in 20 years, because of the mRNA, you're going to get cancer. That's one that I heard recently. Um, all sorts of uh, controversy around vaccines because a lot of people became Facebook scientists over the pandemic. Um, not really sure <laughs> what staying indoors did to a lot of people or wearing a mask, but anyway, protected a lot of people. I heard a, um, a, a comedian recently, he said to the audience, I think we overreacted with the pandemic and everyone clapped. Yeah, yeah, we did. And he said, yeah, uh, the people who are no longer with us didn't think we overreacted to that. Vaccines mm. are a very important aspect of healthcare and adults need vaccines as well. So what are some of the vaccines that are recommended for people 65 years of age and older? Well, you mentioned the COVID vaccine. That is definitely there. It's a new one, but the annual influenza vaccine, it's flu season. So that's recommended. 
pneumococcal vaccine um, to help fight pneumonia, very important. Shingles, that's the real thing. It can be debilitating, especially as we get older, if you have other comorbid conditions. And then the tetanus, because you could be woodworking and hurt. You get a nail in your finger or walking on the beach on vacation and step on something. So that's the tetanus diphtheria, ideally teed up. And then mm-hmm. you might need other ones. There's actually a brand new RSV virus, I mean, RSV vaccine that came to Canada recently. So that's another one that you could talk to your um, care provider, and that's respiratory syncytial virus. Exactly. Um, getting back to the flu vaccine, I don't know how many times. If I had a dollar for every time I heard this, I would be a millionaire. Um, people say, I'm not getting the flu vaccine. A, they say they've never had the flu before. So mm-hmm. for some reason, that's... Um, a reason not to get the flu vaccine. And the other thing that they say it commonly, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is that after they got the flu vaccine, they got the flu. So can you speak to both of those, please? Yes. So a, the person that said they never got the flu, I doubt it. You could have still contracted the flu vaccine, flu virus, sorry, and had minimal symptoms. It's pretty hard to imagine you've lived 65 years plus and never been exposed to it. But okay, but you can still be a carrier and spread that to other people. Um, and it's, we're talking about herd immunity. Our goal is to have those of you whose immune system seems to, you know, dodge that proverbial bullet, help protect others. Um, this whole idea, oh, I got the flu vaccine, I got the flu. No, maybe you were, it takes about two plus weeks to really get some type of immune response, protective response from the vaccine. So it's possible that you are exposed to the um, to the flu virus at the time of the vaccine or shortly between the time your body was able to mount a vigorous response. And then also, your body is mounting a response to it. It's getting kind of like going through training camp when it's exposed to um, the flu vaccine. So your body will, it can have symptoms like you muscle aches, you might feel a little warm, maybe even fever, but you're not getting the flu. There's a difference between responding to a vaccine when your body's mounting an immune response so that when it's exposed to the the actual virus, it knows what to do versus actually contacting the flu. So I, I hear you with the sentiment. Honestly, I've heard it a million times too. And yes, we just give the answers calmly and patiently. (laughs) And you know, there are, as you mentioned, you're mounting a response to the flu after you've received the uh, flu vaccine. And so you might feel achy and you might get a little bit of fever. You might feel, you know, um, fatigue, those kinds of things. But people who have the flu often have a fever or fever and chills, Mm. a cough, a sore throat, runny nose, muscle aches, headaches, extreme Mm -hmm. fatigue. And they might even have vomiting and diarrhea, although it's more common in children than it is in adults. But um, the COVID-19 vaccine this season, um, you know, I heard somebody, it was actually a physician who accidentally said, I'm sure, did you get your booster? It's not a booster, is it? No, it's a new, it's, um, it's, like it's a new strain we have going around right now. So we're, this whole virus is new. Um, we do know that immunity wanes over time. And 
especially if you're over a certain age or you have certain conditions, you should protect yourself and you should protect your family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not getting the uptake in terms of the COVID-19. Not even close. Not, not even close. Even it's, close. Like, it's like worse than the annual flu shot, I think. I don't know. Yes, <laughs> yes. And that's not just this country. It's also uh, to yeah. the south of us as There's well. COVID fatigue. Put it Absolutely. There's COVID fatigue. And so, you know, why is it that people are, why do you think people are just dismissing that COVID-19 is still out there? Well, I think the honest reason is because people aren't dropping like they were before. Like you don't have the record death. That's the truth. That's, it's not pretty. When people were dying by the dozens, you know, LA, I think it was every nine minutes someone was dying of COVID, like the little COVID meter, you know, 1 million, 2 million, 3 million people were like, holy cow. But Uh now people are enjoying the herd immunity like we did for the other preventable illnesses that we've had so much protection over the decades. Uh Um, So people have short-term memory and um, it's a lot easier for them to say, oh, it's no big deal. It's over. The you know, government said COVID is over. It's not a thing. But again, it's, it's unfortunate, but people are tired and they've moved on to something else. But it, COVID I, hasn't moved on with us. That's the sad truth. And I know that Ontario emergency rooms are seeing a big rise in uh, COVID-19 cases. Yeah, I'm seeing it. Yeah, I'm seeing it in Alberta. I'm seeing it in the patients. I'm doing viral scars, like the viral swabs in the office, and I'm seeing COVID. Right, right. Young people, pregnant women, like I'm seeing it. And and here's the other thing. People are coming in with um, upper respiratory tract uh, symptoms, and they're saying it's not COVID. It's like, well, did you test? Yeah, because if you're not swabbing, then how would you know? That's the thing, denial, right? If you don't test it, how are you going to know? So that's, that's right. People aren't testing. No, they're not. And I actually think that they're saying they're testing when they're not testing. Oh, you know, cause tell it, me about it. And it's, they do one test and then you say, well, do you want to do a test in the office now? And no. They're like, no, it's okay. I tested no. at home two days hey, ago. Just, speaking of that, if people got their COVID test last year, most of the batch expired end of last month. So if they haven't gotten new COVID um, tests, they probably have old ones sitting at home if they're even using them. Just FYI. Right. My guest is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. You've heard her voice many times before. She's a medical doctor, family physician, who's also a productivity coach. Very important work. And her website is wellnessstrategies.com. Dr. Mitchell, thanks for staying on the line. I love the fact that you're a productivity coach because, you know, with your clinical background and training and exper- expertise and experience, you're not just writing prescriptions. You're no. actually giving evidence-based information to people. Well, well tell me basically um, how it is that you um, do your productivity coaching. Well, productivity is a term that most people are comfortable with, right? Mental mm-hmm. fitness is a term that they're not. Productivity mm. has a lot to do with your mental fitness. So, um, the stronger you are mentally, the clearer you are with your goals, the more systems you have in place to help streamline your processes and the less distractions and the better boundaries you have, the more productive you'd be. Um, mm-hmm. So it's uh, really every individual situation is different, but we dissect it and 
find out what the underlying reasons are, work on them, and we actively um, reevaluate as our life situation changes. And it's great that you can go to a, somebody can go to a doctor yourself and get, you know, you're not going to get a prescription. You're going to get evidence-based conservative yes. measures on how to become more mentally fit. It's, exactly. it's fantastic. I love, the, I love the look of surprise in their face when they hear that. I'm like, this is a symptom. We're going to deal with underlying cause. Are you ready to do the work with me? And mm-hmm. it's like, let's bring it on. Let's do this. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And, you know, we need more doctors like you, to be honest with you. It's thank fantastic. You. Well, thank you so much for your great work. Um, kind of going to a, a different subject right now, but I wanted to address this because I get a lot of messages from people about this, about palliative versus hospice care. And I, I had a patient in my clinical practice and she said she had terminal cancer and she was young and she said, I asked the doctor. She so wanted to live as so many people do. And, um, she said, I asked the doctors how I would know if I was dying or when I was dying. And and she said, they told me that I will just know. And I thought, what, what kind of an answer is that you will Mm. just know, you know, but it turns out that there is a final stage. Active dying is the final stage of the dying process that can last like three to 10 days. Yeah. Um, and it that happens after that pre-active stage of death, which can last about three weeks. So this woman was waiting for this moment. Um, and, and I think of her often because she has since passed. She was waiting for this moment that, I don't know, a light was going to appear or a sound, something yeah. was going to happen because a lot of people are walking around with terminal cancer, with stage four cancer, and, and they're okay. They're undergoing treatment, immunotherapy or chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, whatever, to keep them going. And they, they're kind of okay. They look okay until they don't, until that preactive stage of dying begins to occur, which is about a month before they actually die. Yeah. Um and so what, what are the symptoms, Dr. Mitchell, of active dying? So this is an individual who at this point is largely bedridden. They don't have the energy to um, do what they used to do. Um, they'll be lying in bed or sitting in their chair, long pauses in breathing. You know, you might think, have they, are they still breathing? Blood pressure drops significantly, changes to skin, um, it can be modeled, uh, your hands and feet, extremities may be cold, bowel incontinence issues, um, hallucinations, delirium. And one that one can never forget is a cough, that rattle, where mm-hmm. they're having challenges. Cough. Normally we would cough up fluid or our lungs would do what it needs to do or cough what's irritating us, but they can't. So they get this buildup in their lungs and Mm -hmm. we call it the death rattle. Like it's just this gurgle sound. Mm -hmm. Um, And it sounds worse to us than it is for them. Is that correct? Oh, I, yes, it sounds Mm -hmm. horrible, but Mm -hmm. to our loved ones, oftentimes they can be quite comfortable if given the, um, the support they need. Right. And it's my understanding that they spend a lot of time sleeping or they might not be able to be awakened or they're in a semi-coma. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, when I see these symptoms that you have just described, the 
patient's breathing patterns that are irregular, low blood pressure, modeling in bed, semi-comatose. You know, I think that answer from that particular physician to this patient of mine, you'll just know. It's like you go from being okay to, you know, slowly sleeping for 22 hours of the day. You know, like I, I often wonder, did she actually know? And this is a conversation, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we need to start talking about. We oh, need to start talking about yeah. death and dying me for too. families, for everybody. 100%. You know, there's a lot of questions people ask and they're afraid to ask. And when they do ask, they're afraid Right, so we have to be as compassionate as possible, and typically there is a trajectory. Obviously, some people, there's no, it's like life and death, you know, here one day, gone the other. But for majority of people who have a diagnosis that they're aware of, there's a process, and you know, the loss of functions, just um, the energy changes because your body is working just to keep the vital organs working. And that's mm-hmm. why things like hands and feet don't get as much blood supply. It's the body's trying to save the heart, the body's mm-hmm. trying to save the lungs and the brain. But mm-hmm. there's only so much our bodies can do. Right. And, you know, and um, we don't have too much time left, but I just want to mention hospice because a lot of people don't want to have anything to do with hospice. Palliative care is, is a little bit more accepted. It's sort of living with comfort measures that you're helping with pain and helping to manage certain things about uh, the disease. But hospice says I'm dying. And especially for people who don't want to die, who have so much to live for. But how can hospice help during the active dying stage? Well, there's support for not only the patient, but also the family. Um, oftentimes, these hospices have open hours where it's 24 um, 7. So, pain is symptom management, educating mm-hmm. the family and the person who's feeling these distressing symptoms, giving them dignity, right? Because you're, oftentimes your bowels don't work. Like, you're right. literally incontinent and mm-hmm. taking care of somebody with dignity and respect mm-hmm. is important. It so is. I hate to cut you off there, but we'll yeah. definitely continue this conversation as well. Talk a little bit more about palliative care and hospice in the future. Thank you so much, My Dr. Pleasure. Mitchell. Always appreciate your contribution. Wellnessstrategies.com. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.